Section 30 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kath Gard. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2. The Odyssey. Episode 13. Nausicaa. Part 3. The exasperating little brats of twins began to quarrel again, and Jackie threw the ball out towards the sea, and they both ran after it. Little monkeys, common as ditch water. Someone ought to take them and give them a good hiding for themselves to keep them in the places, the both of them. And Sissy and Edie shouted after them to come back because they were afraid the tide might come in on them and be drowned. Jackie! Tommy! Not they. What a great notion they had. So Sissy said it was the very last time she'd ever bring them out. She jumped up and called them, and she ran down the slope past him, tossing her hair behind her, which had a good enough colour if there had been more of it, but with all the thingamary she was always rubbing into it, she couldn't get it to grow long, because it wasn't natural, so she could just go and throw her hat at it. She ran with long, gandery strides. It was a wonder she didn't rip up her skirt at the side that was too tight on her, because there was a lot of the tomboy about Sissy Caffrey, and she was a forward piece whenever she thought she had a good opportunity to show, and just because she was a good runner, she ran like that so that he could see all the end of her petticoat running and her skinny shanks up as far as possible. It would have served her just right if she had tripped up over something accidentally on purpose, with her high crooked French heels on her to make her look tall and got a fine tumble. Tableau. That would have been a very charming expose for a gentleman like that to witness. Queen of angels, queen of patriarchs, queen of prophets, of all saints, they prayed, queen of the most holy rosary, and then Father Conroy handed the thurible to Canon O'Hanlon, and he put in the incense, and sensed the blessed sacrament, and Sissy Caffrey caught the two twins, and she was itching to give them a ringing good clip on the ear, but she didn't because she thought he might be watching, but she never made a bigger mistake in all her life, because Gertie could see without looking that he never took his eyes off of her, and then Canon O'Hanlon handed the thurible back to Father Conroy and knelt down looking up at the Blessed Sacrament, and the choir began to sing the tantum ergo, and she just swung her foot in and out in time as the music rose and fell to the tantum ergo sacramentum. Three and eleven she paid for those stockings in Sparrows of George Street on the Tuesday, no, the Monday before Easter, and there wasn't a brack on them, and that was what he was looking at, transparent, and not at her insignificant ones that had neither shape nor form, at the cheek of her, because he had eyes in his head to see the difference for himself. Sissy came up along the strand with the two twins and their ball, with her hat anyhow on her to one side after her run, and she did look a streel tugging the two kids along, with the flimsy blouse she bought only a fortnight before like a rag on her back and a bit of a petticoat hanging like a caricature. Gertie just took off her hat for a moment to settle her hair, and a prettier, a daintier head of nut-brown tresses was never seen on a girl's shoulders, 
a radiant little vision, in sooth almost maddening in its sweetness. You would have to travel many a long mile before you found a head of hair the like of that. She could almost see the swift answering flash of admiration in his eyes that set her tingling in every nerve. She put on her hat so that she could see from underneath the brim, and swung her buckled shoe faster, for her breath caught as she caught the expression in his eyes. He was eyeing her as a snake eyes its prey. Her woman's instinct told her that she had raised the devil in him, and at the thought a burning scarlet swept from throat to brow till the lovely colour of her face became a glorious rose. Edie Boardman was noticing it too, because she was squinting at Gertie, half-smiling, with her specks like an old maid, pretending to nurse the baby. Irritable little gnat she was, and always would be, and that was why no one could get on with her poking her nose into what was no concern of hers. And she said to Gertie, "'Penny for your thoughts.' "'What?' replied Gertie, with a smile, reinforced by the whitest of teeth. "'I was only wondering, was it late?' because she wished to goodness they'd take the snotty-nosed twins and their babby home, to the mischief out of that, so that was why she just gave a gentle hint about its being late. And when Sissy came up, Edie asked her the time, and Miss Sissy, as glib as you like, said it was half-past kissing time, time to kiss again, but Edie wanted to know because they were told to be in early. Wait, said Sissy, I'll run ask my Uncle Peter over there what's the time by his conundrum. So over she went, and when he saw her coming, she could see him take his hand out of his pocket, getting nervous, and beginning to play with his watch-chain, looking up at the church. Passionate nature though he was, Gertie could see that he had enormous control over himself. One moment he had been there, fascinated by a loveliness that made him gaze, and the next moment it was the quiet, grave-faced gentleman, Self-control expressed in every line of his distinguished-looking figure. Sissy said to excuse her, would he mind please telling her what was the right time, and Gertie could see him taking out his watch, listening to it and looking up and clearing his throat. And he said he was very sorry his watch was stopped, but he thought it must be after eight because the sun was set. His voice had a cultured ring in it and though he spoke in measured accents, there was a suspicion of a quiver in the mellow tones. Sissy said thanks, and came back with her tongue out, and said Uncle said his waterworks were out of order. Then they sang the second verse of the Tantum Ergo, and Canon O'Hanlon got up again, and sensed the blessed sacrament, and knelt down, and he told Father Conroy that one of the candles was just going to set fire to the flowers, and Father Conroy got up and settled it all right and she could see the gentleman winding his watch and listening to the works, and she swung her leg more in and out in time. It was getting darker, but he could see, and he was looking all the time that he was winding the watch or whatever he was doing to it, and then he put it back and put his hands back into his pockets. She felt a kind of sensation rushing all over her, and she knew by the feel of her scalp and that irritation against her stays that that thing must be coming on, because the last time, too, was when she clipped her hair on account of the moon. His dark eyes fixed themselves on her again, drinking in her every contour, literally worshipping at her shrine. If ever there was undisguised admiration in a man's passionate gaze, it was there plain to be seen on that man's face. It is for you, Gertrude MacDowell, and you know it.
Edie began to get ready to go, and it was high time for her and Gertie noticed that that little hint she gave had had the desired effect, because it was a long way along the strand to where there was the place to push up the pushcar, and Sissy took off the twins' caps and tidied their hair, to make herself attractive, of course, and Canon O'Hanlon stood up with his coat poking up at his neck, and Father Conroy handed him the card to read off, and he read out, Panem de Coilo, Pri Statisti Ace. And Edie and Sissy were talking about the time all the time, and asking her, but Gertie could pay them back in their own coin, and she just answered with scathing politeness when Edie asked her was she heartbroken about her best boy throwing her over. Gertie winced sharply. A brief cold blaze shone from her eyes that spoke volumes of scorn immeasurable. It hurt, oh yes. It cut deep, because Edie had her own quiet way of saying things like that she knew would wound like the confounded little cat she was. Gertie's lips parted swiftly to frame the word, but she fought back the sob that rose to her throat, so slim, so flawless, so beautifully moulded it seemed one an artist might have dreamed of. She had loved him better than he knew. Light-hearted deceiver and fickle like all his sex, he would never understand what he had meant to her, and for an instant there was in the blue eyes a quick stinging of tears. Their eyes were probing her mercilessly, but with a brave effort she sparkled back in sympathy as she glanced at her new conquest for them to see. Oh, responded Gertie, quick as lightning, laughing, and the proud head flashed up. I can throw my cap at who I like because it's leap year. Her words rang out crystal clear, more musical than the cooing of the ring dove, but they cut the silence icily. There was that in her young voice that told that she was not a one to be lightly trifled with. As for Mr. Reggie, with his swank and his bit of money, she could just chuck him aside as if he was so much filth and never again would she cast as much as a second thought on him and tear his silly postcard into a dozen pieces. And if ever after he dared to presume she could give him one look of measured scorn that would make him shrivel up on the spot. Miss puny little Edie's countenance fell to no slight extent, and Gertie could see by her looking as black as thunder that she was simply in a towering rage, though she hid it, the little kinnet, because that shaft had struck home for her petty jealousy, and they both knew that she was something aloof, apart, in another sphere, that she was not of them, and never would be, and there was somebody else too that knew it, and saw it, so they could put that in their pipe and smoke it. Edie straightened up Baby Boardman to get ready to go, and Sissy tucked in the ball and the spades and buckets, and it was high time too because the Sandman was on his way for Master Boardman Junior, and Sissy told him too that Billy Winks was coming, and that Baby was to go dee-daw, and Baby looked just too ducky, laughing up out of his gleeful eyes, and Sissy poked him like that out of fun in his wee fat tummy, and Baby, without as much as a by your leave, sent up his compliments to all and sundry unto his brand new dribbling bib. Oh, my puddeny pie, protested Sis. He has his bib destroyed. The slight contretemps claimed her attention, but in two-two she set that little matter to rights. 
Gertie stifled a smothered exclamation and gave a nervous cough, and Edie asked what, and she was just going to tell her to catch it while it was flying, but she was ever ladylike in her deportment, so she simply passed it off with consummate tact by saying that that was the benediction, because just then the bell rang out from the steeple over the quiet seashore, because Canon O'Hanlon was up on the altar with the veil that Father Conroy put round his shoulders, giving the benediction with the blessed sacrament in his hands. How moving the scene there in the gathering twilight, the last glimpse of Erin, the touching chime of those evening bells, and at the same time a bat flew forth from the ivied belfry, through the dusk, hither, thither, with a tiny lost cry, and she could see far away the lights of the lighthouses, so picturesque she would have loved to do with a box of paints, because it was easier than to make a man, and soon the lamplighter would be going his rounds, past the Presbyterian church grounds, and along by shady Tritonville Avenue, where the couples walked, and lighting the lamp near her window, where Reggie Wiley used to turn his free will, like she read in that book, The Lamplighter, by Miss Cummins, author of Mabel Vaughan and other tales. For Gertie had her dreams that no one knew of. She loved to read poetry, and when she got a keepsake from Bertha Supple, of that lovely confession album with the coral pink cover to write her thoughts in, she laid it in the drawer of her toilet table, which, though it did not err on the side of luxury, was scrupulously neat and clean. It was there she kept her girlish treasure trove, the tortoiseshell combs, her child of Mary badge, the white rose scent, the eyebrow liner, her alabaster pouncet box, and the ribbons to change when her things came home from the wash. And there were some beautiful thoughts written in it, in violet ink, that she bought in Healy's of Dame Street, for she felt that she too could write poetry if she could only express herself like that poem that appealed to her so deeply that she had copied out of the newspaper she found one evening round the pot herbs. Art thou real, my ideal? It was called by Louis J. Walsh, Vagarafel, and after there was something about twilight, wilt thou ever? And oft-times the beauty of poetry, so sad in its transient loveliness, had misted her eyes with silent tears, for she felt that the years were slipping by for her, one by one, and but for that one shortcoming, she knew she need fear no competition, and that was an accident coming down Dolky Hill, and she always tried to conceal it. But it must end, she felt. If she saw that magic lure in his eyes, there would be no holding back for her. Love laughs at locksmiths. She would make the great sacrifice. Her every effort would be to share his thoughts. Dearer than the whole world would she be to him, and gild his days with happiness. There was the all-important question, and she was dying to know, was he a married man or a widower who had lost his wife, or some tragedy like the nobleman with the foreign name from the land of song had to have her put into a madhouse, cruel only to be kind. But even if... What then? Would it make a very great difference? From everything in the least indelicate, her fine-bred nature instinctively recoiled. She loathed that sort of person. The fallen women off the accommodation walk beside the dodder that went with the soldiers and coarse men with no respect for a girl's honour, 
degrading the sex and being taken up to the police station. No, no, not that. They would be just good friends, like a big brother and sister, without all that other in spite of the conventions of society, with a big S. Perhaps it was an old flame he was in mourning for from the days beyond recall. She thought she understood. She would try to understand him because men were so different. The old love was waiting. Waiting with little white hands stretched out, with blue appealing eyes. Heart of mine. She would follow her dream of love, the dictates of her heart that told her he was her all in all, the only man in all the world for her, for love was the master guide. Nothing else mattered. Come what might, she would be wild, untrammeled, free. End of section 30